0: Hi, everybody. It's Jean Nathan. It's Crosstown Conversations. And we are on the cusp of our Passover and Easter weekend. Um, and uh, it's an interesting time uh, of the year. Um, if if you study the origins of our customs and our religions, um, as I do sometimes in a wonderful book that I'm crazy about called The Golden Bough, that kind of tells you where everything starts, where it comes from. And um when I looked up Easter, I found that most faiths and most parts of the world um have some kind of spring celebration of renewal. Um, I can't think of a year when we need that renewal more. We have really been through it for the past couple of years. And just recently, of course, <laughs> with the horrible, um tragic fire, in the uh, church in um, uh, Paris, the Notre Dame, and with the really horrible three church burnings in our own state, Louisiana. And it turns out that there may be not only a coincidence and timing of these events, but possibly um, the concern for the tragedy in Paris, And what has happened to the churches in Louisiana are conjoined in an uh, an interesting way. Um, I have with me uh, first and coming up right now, um, Reverend Mason Jack. He's the pastor of the Mount Bethel Baptist Church. And he is an an official uh, general secretary of the Seventh District Baptist Association, which is an organization um, to which the three churches that burn belong, and he's very much involved in the effort to raise the funds to restore them. Reverend, are you there?
1: Yes, ma'am, I'm here.
0: I'm so happy to have you on. um, Thank you. And sad about the occasion for why I have you on i 'd much rather just be talking to you about Easter, but yes, um, we 've had a, a pretty rugged r- run up to it, as did Jesus Christ have a pretty yes, difficult run up to um, this this time of the year um, let, let, let me start with asking you uh, mm-hmm. just tell me we 'll we'll talk about the fact that there 's been this incredible response. Mm-hmm. and um, offers of help but l- let me start with setting the stage so to speak tell, tell me okay. wh- how did you first hear about the first church burning and the and the subsequent two burnings and 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 what were your thoughts and feelings about that
1: well um first of all thank you all for having me it's an honor to um be on your show to share uh with you all um the first church burn on march twenty sixth, i heard about it um first thing in the morning when i woke up at four o'clock getting ready to go work out um a fellow pastor a friend of mine texted me and st- which stated that saint mary baptist church was um burned to the ground um then subsequently a week later um the two other churches and i heard through the early morning hours uh, through text message that those churches had burned and um For our association with us being so close-knit and as a family, it was very heartbreaking um, because these pastors are guys that I I know personally and guys who I might share the pulpit with and had the the privilege of serving the 7th District with. And so um, when news broke that those churches burned, it really brought a uh, a hurt to us, um, not only as a district, but also as a body of believers.
0: And were you concerned? I'm sure you were. That there were going to be more burnings. And um, I don't know enough about um, how they found the suspects, but can you inform me at all on
1: that? Sure. Um, after the, the second burning, um, everyone became suspicious. Then, not long after the second burn, the third church burned. And uh, the sheriff and st landry parish made a commitment that the personal persons involved would be caught um governor john bell Edwards got involved and um the atc and it, the fire marshal and upon the investigation they discovered that um holden matthews was the individual who um fire to all three churches they were able to obtain surveillance video um in fact, the last church that was burned, the information that we found, that was, that was brought forth, rather, stated that a gas can that was purchased at Walmart, he left in the last church. And so through their investigation, they linked everything back to him. And, on in fact, last Wednesday, as I was doing Bible study, I got alert on my phone that a suspect was in custody and it was long thereafter he was named. And uh, there was a sense of relief among uh, the pastors, the congregations, and, and for us also um, to learn that the individual w- was caught. Uh, uh, a few I, days. I'm sorry. Go ahead. A few, yeah, a few days later, a press conference was held, and uh, the governor, fire marshal, and everyone gave an update of the investigation.
0: So uh, I imagine when you got that message and and you're actually in church, um, did you make an
1: announcement at that time? I did. In fact, um, we were leaving our Bible study when I got the alert. And I, I had everyone to stop, and I told my congregation, "I said a suspect has been arrested in the church fire." And there was a sense of relief. We praised God, and uh, I, like I told, shared with the congregation, let's continue to pray for the church churches. You know, let's also pray for this individual.
0: And what what, what do you do you uh, think about the fact that we are here, um, some forty—let well, me think now—about sixty years um, after integration, mm-hmm. and we're still having a church burning, a two and a three church burnings.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, Miss um, Nathan, it's unfortunate that although we're, year, we're years past all that, that spirit still resides, and it doesn't reside in all of humanity, but unfortunately there are some human beings who have that spirit of racism and um, that feel the need to try to desecrate that which God has ordained. Uh, But what we we preach and teach as believers, forgiveness at this season is being put to a test where we have to practice it and exemplify it. Um, And so we've been praying and there's a sense of relief and the pastors are relieved. The congregations are relieved, and they're ready to move forward from this.
0: I, I want to move forward with you, but I, I still want to ask one last question sure. about the church burnings. And of course, I have so many more than one last, but I, I'll go with that for the moment. Um, why churches? I just—I'm I'm from the north, and and uh-huh. not that we don't have plenty of racism in the north, but mm-hmm. uh, when you hear of a church burning. Mm-hmm. Uh, needless to say, a lot of people, when they first heard of Notre Dame burning,
2: mm-hmm. their
0: thoughts went to terrorism. It, it mm-hmm. had to in this age that we're in. But mm-hmm. um, I, I just I don't understand why target the place where people worship. I just mm-hmm. what is what is the psychology uh, behind that? As as you've understood it over the years of of having dealt with these in the past.
1: Uh-huh. Well, you know, for us. Um, The church is a place that we've always hold high reverence to. Um, It's a source of our strength. um, And for a whole lot of churches in our area, um, they're family-oriented. And when I say family-oriented, a whole lot of these families actually grew up in these churches. Their foreparents may have started those churches. And there's so much history and culture in our churches that we go there for a place of worship, a place of reverence. Um, And honestly, Ms. Nathan, some churches, you know, some family names are on the pews. That's how, how in indoctrinate we are in, in our right. culture for the church. Yeah. And so for someone to burn a church, I, I'm assuming the psychology is I'm gonna get them where it hurts. Yeah. Because if you try to desecrate what is precious to us, it's a it's a way to it's an attempt rather to slap us in the face. Um but like I mentioned yesterday to someone, the church herself is fireproof because she's faith-proven. Um, Jesus said, upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell should not prevail against it. And so what we're witnessing, what we're going through is a church attack, but this attack has only allowed the gospel to be dispersed further and has brought us together stronger because we realize the church, although the building is gone, the body of believers, are, we're growing stronger.
0: So that brings me to the story today because, Mm -hmm. as you said, we move forward, and the story today is this almost miraculous and, and and, I don't know, ironic twist Mm -hmm. of fate that with the burning of Notre Dame, Mm -hmm. there were stories written that not only was it terrible that that church burned, but Mm -hmm. it's terrible that these smaller churches— in the country in louisiana burned Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. provoked a absolute you know the word that came to my mind is such a crazy word firestorm but of Uh of 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 people responding to your plight and wanting to help tell tell the audience what happened Uh, because i only learned of it um earlier today Uh it just it filled my heart
1: yes um Last week, uh, maybe approximately nine, ten days ago, uh, the president of our association, um, Pastor Freddie Jack, uh, suggested to our finance secretary my wife that we start a gold uh, funding page Mm -hmm. in an attempt to raise funds to assist these churches. Now, they, they have insurance, but we know that there's the possibility that the insurance may not cover the building of a new edifice completely. Yeah. And so uh we aim for initially 1.8 million to the it will be dispersed equally among all three churches. And Miss Nathan yesterday around maybe noon it was like at 500,000. Um right now we're at 1.5 million.
0: Oh and my
1: goodness. It, it has been a an That's two more million.
0: That's two more million since I last talked to you midday <laughs> when it was 1.3 million.
1: Yes, ma'am. Um, And, you know, the thing is, Christians are stepping up to a plate to show that love will prevail against hate. Um, What was done to these churches in St. Landry Parish was an act of hate, um, but love always prevails. It's unfortunate what happened at Notre Dame, and, you know, I I do believe, you know, the Catholic faith, they're, they're financially stable. But... Thank God Christians are stepping up for these churches in rural communities to show that, you know, as, as believers, regardless of your um, denomination, your ethnic background, we're one body in Christ. And the, the support has been so overwhelming, and, um, I mean, it brings tears to our eyes, And it, because these churches will not only be able to, to rebuild, but they'll be able to rebuild stronger and even have more ministries to do more work for the kingdom.
0: I want so, you to uh, – I'm sorry, finish your sentence. Oh,
1: no, no, something good is going to come out of this. Right. Um, all things work together right. for the good.
0: Right. And and I want you to tell uh, the people who are listening to us right now how mm-hmm. they can um, spike it again, spike that mm-hmm. those numbers again. Tell them how they can contribute. Maybe, uh, many can, people don't know what GoFundMe is and how that works, so tell them.
1: Sure. Um, if you go online, go to GoFundMe. Um, .com and type in the search engine, um, St. Landry Church Fires, it'll come up. Um, you can read about the 7th District, the three churches that burned, and you can make a monetary do- donation to um, the, the project. Or if they would like to, they can make checks or money orders payable to the 7th District Baptist Association and mail those to PO Box three three nine two one. Lafayette, Louisiana, 70502, because all the monies we receive, whether by mail, GoFundMe, will be dispersed evenly uh, among all three churches.
0: Um, I'm going to uh, add that to my uh, newsletter going forward for quite some time until um, you really have enough money to not only bring the churches back, but to bring them back in a way that is even more glorious than they were before, yes, and ma'am? I have, in talking with people in the city here in New Orleans this past day, um, mm-hmm. there are um, artists and there are architects who would like to help, and okay. I, I think that. Um, and I'm sure that's true in other parts of the state as well. I'm not saying that's just a New Orleans thing, but but yes ma'am we we there as you say, love definitely trumps hate. I, oh yes, did I ma'am. use that word, oh my god, so yes. um we we are going to help, we're going to help. Praise God. um, I I want you to stay in touch with me. You have my number.
1: Yes, ma'am. And let
0: me know how it's going so I can post it in my newsletter and uh, encourage more people. So the most important thing uh, for those who are listening who would like to help, Uh all you have to know is go online and put in GoFundMe and then St. Landry Church Fire. Yes, ma'am. Thank you so much, Reverend. And I wish you all the luck in your rebuilding. And um I'm going to continue this conversation now with a a woman reporter who helped uh, drive some of the um, interest that led to uh, some of your contributions, and and we're going to keep this up.
1: Okay. Thank you so much. God bless you.
0: Thank you. God bless you. Bye.
1: Bye
0: -bye. Bye-bye. Now I'm going to bring in um, Megan Romer, who's a writer, an independent writer based in Lafayette, and um, she jumped on this and made a big difference. And, and Megan, are you there? I am. Can you hear me? Yes, I certainly can. Great, loud and clear. Um, Megan, tell me exactly um, uh, what you did. Okay. Well, I'm a
3: um, I'm a freelance writer um, and yeah. and a, a part time adult ed instructor also. Uh, and so the story is it's sort of a long story. Uh, it I was at the local TV news station at KLFY uh, a few weeks ago because I was doing a TV interview for a fundraiser for the adult education nonprofit where I am an instructor. And as I was sitting in the green room, I see a news story come on that, hey, a second church has burned in St. Landry Parish. And I said, whoa, second church? a second church, you know, you hear one church burning and eh, maybe your hackles go up, but you figure out electric problem or something, two churches. And then I saw that they were both missionary Baptist churches, which I know is a black denomination um, here. And I thought, Oh geez, something's up. So I went and looked at it. first I did my interview and then (laughs) then I went back and I looked and um, tried to kind of raise the alarm as best I could. I have a, you know, modest Twitter following, um, tried to get people to pay attention, got some retweets on this, you know, two churches have burned, what's going on. Um, I went to a prayer meeting at my own church. We prayed for the two churches. We added them to our prayer list, um, went to bed, got up the next morning, a third church had burned, and it was like, all right, something is really, really happening. This is really important. Please pay attention. (laughs) So I was Tagging reporters on Twitter, and I was trying to get somebody from the National News to pay attention. Um, it took a couple days. Finally, I think enough retweets reached somebody, and and the AP picked it up, and and um, the national uh, national the main stations picked up the affiliate stories, um, and the, the New York Times finally showed up. But it took a really long time to get the attention that I think. Should come to a string of black church burnings. That is a big deal. This is a very big deal, um, and it wasn't getting the attention. So, I've been spending the last couple of weeks kind of tweeting out every news article I I saw about it, kind of trying to keep it in the foreground. Um, they, they caught the guy, which is great, but then. Of course, then suddenly it's, oh, the reason he did it is because of, of heavy metal music. And it was like, no, no, you know, accidentally, like, oops, just, I just so happened to burn three black churches because of the heavy metal music. I don't buy it. I think we need to talk about it for what it is, call it out for what it is. This was a racist string of arson, Um and it wasn't being discussed as such. So when Notre Dame caught on fire, I was actually on I was on a different I was in a meeting for a for a mission group that my church does. Um and left that meeting and opened my Twitter and looked and saw that Notre Dame was on fire and my heart broke immediately. I love that church. I mean, who doesn't, right? If you've ever been to Paris, it's the most incredible place. Um and and I mourned with everyone and then after a couple of hours suddenly I started seeing, so how are we gonna raise money for Notre Dame? And I was like, what? <laughs> Why are we going to raise money for Notre Dame? It's, it's owned by the French government and administered by the Catholic Church. They, those are two very wealthy entities. They're going to have very wealthy donors. So I drafted a tweet that said, um, I am heartbroken about the loss of Notre Dame because I am. It's a beautiful piece of architecture. It's a piece of art history. It's a piece of world history. Um, but the Catholic Church has plenty of money. Um, and I think that if we want to donate money to a church this week, perhaps consider donating to this GoFundMe of these three black churches that burn in St. Landry Parish. I will not make any arguments that these churches are, have the architectural significance or the world history significance, but they do have historical significance. They are historical. And it's really important that we save them, and it'll take much less money, uh, the proportionally, I think, you know, we're looking at, we're looking at $1.8 million as opposed to whatever, however many hundreds of millions of dollars it's going to take to fix Notre Dame. So I kind of tried to spread it out and and then that started getting retweeted and retweeted and retweeted and retweeted. And, retweeted and um, I went to bed eventually and <laughs> woke up and I think it was at like 10,000 retweets, which I've never, I've had tweets, do some numbers, five hundred, maybe a thousand. But as of right now, it is at forty-one thousand retweets and a hundred and eleven thousand likes.
0: So um, I have to tell you that I've, I've, I've. Ne- I don't, I don't tweet. First uh-huh. of all, I just ha- hate that word. But more importantly, <laughs> I hate how it is used by. Many people, uh, especially the president. So it, it, I have a real aversion to it. But, mm-hmm. but, but I am now reformed. <laughs> I am reformed <laughs> by what, what you have been able to do, uh, with your, um, concentrated, intentional tweeting. And I'm gonna have to learn how to do it and, and add my voice. I've always been afraid it, yeah. of it too because I can kind of shoot my mouth off a bit. I'm kind of known for that. And oh, I'm sense. saying I need not to be on tweet, <laughs> but I've changed my mind now because what, what you've done is so important. Um, I, so I, I understand, you know, when I talked to, um, Reverend Jack earlier in the day, it was at $1. Mm-hmm. $1. $1.3 million and I was flabbergasted. And then I get on the phone with him just a few minutes ago. I don't know if you heard our interview. It's at 1.5.
3: Yeah, so, yeah, I, I can I can click on it right now and see uh, the official as we're live talk. Yeah, so it's one million five hundred thirty nine thousand eight hundred forty eight dollars so raised since by twenty eight thousand eight hundred ninety one people. I mean, most of these donors are donating five and ten dollars, um, which is amazing. That's a you know this really great brick by brick effort to help these these churches. This you know get back on their feet and make themselves, I, I think a lot of people don't realize how important the black church is to the black community in the rural rural South and everywhere also, but particularly, you know, in St. Landry Parish, is very poor, it's very spread out, and these churches are already sort of community hubs for families going back generations, as Pastor Jack was saying. Um, it really matters to have them, to have them be stable and be there um so them being able to rebuild and and rebuild better you know good on them if they can put in a nice playground and a basketball court and a a
0: good kitchen you know right that's great stuff because it really is it's a community center as much as it is a place of worship and and Mm -hmm. i think that's um that's another reason why these the person who who did this evil act um was uh, hitting at the heart of the community and not just uh, absolutely. Yeah, um, how, how 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 has this changed um, your perception of your place in, in, in life? I, I imagine that this is this is a dramatic thing that's just happened for you and the community. Um,
3: it is. I mean, I'm a I'm a sort of non profit worker and kind of kind of activist already. So I, it's not the first big thing I've been a part of. I might have had slightly more influence than I've had in other ways, but I didn't actually do anything. All I did was tweet. So I don't, like, feel like I somehow, like, changed the world or something. I just got lucky and having to hit Twitter right at the right time, and my tweet went viral, which is so great because the goal was to raise money for the churches. It's not about, you know, my Twitter or anything.
0: And 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 by the way, Megan, I see that you have a similar background to me in a way because I see that you're originally from central New York and I, I'm yeah. from I'm from the city, but I went to school up in Ithaca, so um I'm from Trumansburg. Uh, well you'll have to tell me where that is. <laughs> it's uh, it's the next
3: town north of Ithaca and most people who went to school in Ithaca went to the Rongo to go partying which was the famous bar in my hometown. Uh,
0: okay. Yeah, I'm not much of a bar hopper, but uh um, yeah, so either, I didn't but... quite make it there, but um <laughs> so so you when did you come uh, uh here to Louisiana? Um, so I moved down the first time in
3: 2003 um and then I left in 2006. I went back to New York for work uh and then I came back 3 years later.
0: And you're here for good, I imagine. Uh, more or less. I'm here for now. <laughs> okay. I noticed also that you um, you also write on the arts, which is something that mm-hmm. is very important to us. And and um, uh, I, I first picked up some information on this this morning when I talked with Jacques Morial, who's one of my mentors and important sources. And he, he said, you know, Jean, what you might want to do to help is to see if you can't get – some art donated for the churches. And I said, I Mm. think that that's something I would love to, to uh, make happen. And then Mm -hmm. we also went on and talked about the architecture and, Mm -hmm. you know, architectural fees can be significant because there's a lot of work involved and a lot of people that have to execute designs. And so Mm. perhaps if we can find a way to um, get some support from uh, the architectural world in, in the state, that could also be a significant help. Listen, you Keep tweeting, Megan <laughs> romer will do I, I think uh, <laughs> I think that um, I've learned an important lesson from from what you've done uh, it, you said you didn't do anything but you stayed on it, and that in its in yeah. and of itself is important that you not only sent out that first tweet but you kept going, and so you keep going and, and as I told um, Pastor Jack, please keep me informed on how it's going i'm going to keep. Uh, putting, I do a newsletter once a week, and i have nothing like your um, ultimate uh, uh, tweet audience, but it does reach <laughs> quite a few people, and and we'll try sure. to continue to uh, build that um, uh, church chest. Yes. Yeah. Well,
3: it. I'm hoping my church in Lafayette, the First Presbyterian, we're looking forward to doing a building day with with the folks up in Saint Landry. So.
0: Hopefully, we'll be able to take a picture for you. All right. Listen. <laughs> good luck to you, and you uh, know, as I said, keep me keep me informed. We'll um, do. I'd like to uh, to know what's going on. We're going to take a, t- a tiny little break, and then I'm going to bring in my next guest, who just happens to be an architect. <laughs> uh, maybe by chance, maybe not. All right. Back with Lee Ledbetter, who is—I um, I, would—I would classify him as still a young architect in the city. Has that way? <laughs> I love it. Um, I've known him uh, for um, quite a while, so that belies the uh, youth part. Um, and um, he's done some amazing work, and um, I'm fascinated uh, by um, both the quality of the work. Um, as well as the way he has, and very deliberately, integrated historic and very contemporary elements in his work, both exterior architecture as well as interiors. And the book that he has just done that has just come out, The Art of Place by Lee Ledbetter, Architecture and Interiors, and it's on Rizzoli, which is a... Incredible label. I often have haunted the store in New York when I was living there. Um, and so it's a, it's a great, um, is imprint the word some folks use? That means that this will get read in many places. And what I'm fascinated to see in his book, which I'm just barely getting familiar with, is how place-based it is. It's it's talking not just about the houses and what's in them and what they look like, but where they are. And this is a, a very important aspect of um, design today that we are very much aware of and dealing with. The place that we live in and work in and play in and create in. And so I'm, I'm fascinated to see the emphasis on that. Um, and I'm also fascinated that you're from M- Monroe, Louisiana, which believe it or not, Lee, I didn't know. <laughs> so
4: this is why you make a book.
0: <laughs> right, exactly. So I'm, I'm going to be, first of all, start with, um, you know, how people in the creative fields tend to, grab on to a creative, a creative um, uh, genre in their lives young. And I imagine that somehow when you are first traveling around, as I, descri- I, I saw in one of the descriptions of your work, with your mom noticing the architecture, and, and that contributes and leads to you considering the, the practice of architecture. Tell me a little bit more about how that came to be. So
4: one of the things that's uh, that's a story I've told in thinking about how to talk about this book and about my work is my early impressions as a child. I grew up in, as you said, in Monroe on a, a river called the Ouachita River, which comes down from Arkansas. My parents had a house that we all grew up in, obviously, that uh, backed up to a levee, and between the levee and the river, about 20 to 50 yards of forest, depending on the flood stage of the river. So... We spent a tremendous amount of time in those woods, as we called them, which was the deep forest. It was a, it was a rather Huck Finn childhood. We literally swung from vines in, into the river, uh, and I think I, I think because of that, from a very early age, I associated beauty with nature and nature with beauty, and um, I, I hope that that translate in the uh, translates in the work. The other thing that you mentioned, Gene, is uh, I, I was. I was. It seemed like forever. A passenger in my mom or dad's car as they ran errands. Um, long before I was able to drive. Like my so,
0: no babysitters. More going with mom and dad.
4: Exactly. My wow, my interesting. my my face pressed against the the passenger side window, just watching these these houses fly by in fast succession. And some of them were. They were all kind of a ranch. Almost all are kind of a ranch style proportion. But some of them had been designed in a kind of neo Palladian way by a great architect in Monroe named King Stubbs, whose son John is and, the head of... And,
0: and share with people what Neo-Palladian means because...
4: So Palladio was a great architect in the Renaissance, in uh, the late Renaissance, in Vicenza, Italy, and he was the first architect to apply uh, the classic uh, the classic temple uh, pediment and columns, the temple form to domestic architecture, where he, which he did so beautifully in, in uh, these... These kind of country farmhouses. So, for instance, these houses, these, these houses you see throughout actually the country, Greek Revival houses with the pediment and columns, is all has all evolved from um, what Palladio did in Italy in the 1500s. Oh, so
0: interesting. I, I really didn't know that. And um, I, I, so, what you're saying is that the designs of churches, this architect said, should be used in 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 common homes and buildings, and not just churches.
4: Absolutely. In fact, um, in fact, at the time they weren't even necessarily churches. They were antique uh, Roman and Greek temples. They were like churches, but from antiquity. Right. Uh, and and so when I say that these ranch proportioned houses had this Neoplatidian vibe, for lack of a better word, what this architect King Stubbs did in Monroe, and and this was done in other cities as well, is is take a Horizontal ranch-style proportioned house, and apply just raise it up just so slightly so that you would walk up a few steps, and there might be a few columns and a pediment kind of in the center of a horizontal proportion. Likewise, there were houses in Monroe that were the same ranch shape, but that were uh, that were very modern. There were some really good mid-century modern architecture in Monroe that had been done really just before I was born and then continuing in my childhood. And so I would pass a traditional house. Then I would pass, as these houses went by, the, 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 the view from the car, a traditional house, then a modernist house, a house that was had no architecture to speak of at all. But all of it became a kind of repertoire in my head or a card catalog, if you will, of, of um, in my young mind, equally valid ways to approach designing a house. Um, so
2: go ahead.
0: So so, so um, it, it's so interesting because um, you know I grew up in in the, in New York in a city where it's intense architecture, a lot of it very beautiful, but um, uh, not something that would easily inspire me to think that I could um, work with that. Although just just to share with you this little sidebar on myself, um, you know I lived in the Bronx, and across from the New Orleans from the um, Museum of Modern Art on 53rd Street was the Donnell Library, and the Donnell Library had a huge section in it on architecture, and I used to go take out books on architecture. I actually thought at one point in my life that I was going to be an architect. And I'll be honest with you, the only thing that scared me off was that I'm such a bad math student.
4: I hear that all the time. And I and was
0: it's... I was told, you know, that I had to be <laughs> able to do math to be an architect. So I, and sometimes you really shouldn't let something scare you off that way. That's and, right. And I and I was, and I apologize no, no, to myself for doing that. I hear
4: that all the time. and um, And I actually do think math really helps with architecture. I was Always good at math, though I didn't really love it until I became an architect. But it just helps in terms of proportion and ratios and that sort of thing. Geometry, obviously, but mm-hmm. but I don't think you've got to be a math whiz to be an architect. I think it's more important to be uh, to be artistic, to be somebody that loves to draw. Um, at least that's been the case for me.
0: And that was true for me too. Um, so let, let's take it further. So you're driving around, you're looking at these houses. When does it click in that maybe you could design houses?
4: I, I guess I never really thought of it like that. Um, I did. I, I, had a, I, have a, I had a very close friend growing up uh, whose family was originally from New Orleans, actually, but he was a childhood friend who, who drew beautifully, and uh, his name's Taylor. And Taylor and I would take – we would pull – the exploded views of major cities out of the Rand McNally atlases we would pull the full page dedicated to say san francisco and we would do trace overlays of the structure of the city how it interlocked with the water for instance where the bridges were and then we would do these three dimensional soft pencil axonometrics on top of the of the plans that had no scale relationship to the actual plans and we would design these space age slash Jetsons type cities on these existing footprints. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we were designing cities. We did house plans that were, in retrospect, terrible because you, we had interior rooms that only opened to interior rooms. In other words, all the rooms in the house didn't have ex- uh, outside air or light. But, um, yeah, we were we were drawing um, houses and cities from the fourth grade all through high school. Wow. Um, but I still didn't start off studying architecture in college. I went to college uh, as a pre-med major uh, my first year, and I did take a lot of art because I always loved painting and drawing, but um, it wasn't until the summer after my freshman year in college that I decided I was going to study architecture. My mother's mother, however, from the time I was a young child, told my mother that I would be an architect, which...
0: She knew something.
4: Grandmothers see everything,
0: right? (laughs) She knew something. (laughs)
2: Yeah.
0: Fascinating. Uh, So um, let's talk about your work. Uh, So again, the emphasis has been put on, I've always thought of your work as very modern, and so I didn't think so much about the uh, um, historical uh, side of it. And um, I I can see it now looking in in your book, but um, tell me uh, a little bit more about modern Versus historic. And here we are in a city that can only talk about historic, really. I was one of the few people in the city who protested against tearing down Rivergate.
4: As well you should have. And thank you for that.
0: I tried. And I, I, I was very, very depressed that I could not get. I'm trying to remember who the architectural critic at the time was. It was the the big guy, Paul Goldberger. Yeah. I tried to get Paul Goldberger to do a story on it, and I I wasn't as successful as my tweeting friend here that I was just talking with. And the PRC had absolutely – the preservation folks in the city had absolutely no interest in it. And, I mean, now there is a a kind of modernist-oriented vein in some of the people who are concerned about preservation in the city, yet we lost that school in Treme. That was a a very important modern building. Um, Tell me how you – Tell me how you view the juxtaposition of the more historic with the more contemporary.
4: Let me just back up and say I think the PRC has grabbed the importance of modernism in New Orleans and is running with it. I don't know if you're aware of their mid mod series, but it's extraordinary what they're doing. I am. And That's
0: what I was referring yeah, to as the vein. No, of, yeah.
4: Um, I'm, it's real, I'm really pleased with what they're doing and, and the attention that modernism is getting in the city now, but um, – I'm sorry, what was your question again?
0: <laughs> how, uh, tell me about...
4: Oh, modernism in this city? And,
0: and No, no, uh, the, how you work with both the historic and the modern. Oh, okay. And Because that intersection is something that apparently is important to you.
4: So I think it starts with the client, honestly. Um, we obviously, as much as we like to think of ourselves as artists, architects do, um, this is a service industry, and, and our job is to create places that people want to live in and that keep them safe, right, ultimately. And, um, and so if a client comes to us wanting a, a modern house, um, we'll do a modern house. If they come to us wanting um, a renovation of a, say, 19th or early 20th century house, um, we almost always inflect a renovation project like that with, um, let me just say, modern ideas, for instance, those houses were built before air conditioning, and so typically in let's just say a side hall house or even a center hall house, you had small openings between the hallway itself and the parlors to each side. That was to keep the heat into the in within the parlors, so it wouldn't be lost to the hallways. Now with central air and heat. Uh, We have the ability to open those small openings from the hallway. In fact, we create really large cased openings, cased appropriately to the period of the house in terms of their moldings. But we create these large openings to create a much larger sense of space, to bring natural light through the parlors into the hallways, and to actually start to capture views from one parlor across, across a large hallway to another parlor. So we open it up and give it a more kind of free so, so plan. So you've,
0: you've corrected your initial instincts as a drawing with your friend of closing the rooms <laughs> into each other. Yeah, that's funny. That kind of exactly. say, oh no, not a good idea. <laughs>
4: Yeah, that's a good point.
0: Uh, You know, I'm looking right now at a house in your book that is on a bayou, bayou um, Desiard? Desiard. Huh? Desiard. Desiard. Desiard.
4: That's in Monroe.
0: In Monroe. And um, I'm looking at something that uh, integrates basically the swamp.
4: Yeah, that's an amazing. I lot. mean, these
0: are that, these are cypress trees with you know the the knots showing and.
4: Yeah, that's a that's a site that had a 600 uh, linear foot uh, uh, border of bayou. Basically, that site's on a promontory where two bayous intersect. So, um, we working with some might not
0: make it through climate change. Uh, that's, <laughs> yeah, know. that's a
4: really good point. I hope. Um, alleged climate change, you mean? Ha, ha, ha. Yeah, um, no. no. that's a... I
0: think that alleged part <laughs> is over.
4: I, uh, hopefully. Uh, that's a house that um, that we did in Monroe, actually soon after I opened my own firm in 96. And we worked with a fantastic landscape architect from New York, and uh, he devised that boardwalk system that just skirts the site and skirts it's the Yeah, you
2: know.
0: It's gorgeous. And then as I turned to the interior... I would definitely say this interior is is a um, a, 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 a combination of historic and, and modern. It has a really this could be in a in a in a home in New Orleans in the Garden District. This room.
4: Yeah, yeah. I don't know if
0: you agree with that, but yeah. I mean it's very uh, it's very impressive. It's very warm. Uh, it's 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 traditional.
4: It's a mahogany panel library with herringbone. Uh, uh, leather tiled floors actually uh but you know if you look closely the the there's a modernity about the some of the details certainly the art and the furniture um uh, but combined with uh those are chippendale chairs in that room and and a mm-hmm. and a i think george the third partner's desk so we like to we like to combine sort of iconic modern pieces by corbusier and Mies van der Rohe, et etc with um with beautiful antiques. I mean, that's where I think the culture of a project, of a house, comes from.
0: Oh, God, you're just reminding me of of something that somebody once said that I can't lose. So, as you know, Tannen and I appreciate that and have done that to the hilt, right? So in our house in Mississippi, and and you've seen it, um, in what we call the big room, which was originally the garage, it was a two-car garage, which we turned into a room. We have a piece of furniture by James Mott, who was a designer from the 40s, and it's very, oh, it's just kind of a bizarre piece of furniture. And then there's a Cypress work table in the middle of the room. So um, I don't, I'm debating whether I'm going to call her name or not. Well, a museum woman from New York happened to be there, and she said, well, those things just do not go with each other at all. And I looked at him, and I was thinking... Well, why not? You know, why not? Now, she has, there's something to what she said. Of course, that's where there's a George Nelson bed, too, and, and some uh, furniture that's very 60s, let's say. So I, I see where she's coming from, but
4: I, I, I don't see why
0: you can't mix all those things together.
4: I disagree. I think I think if you love them, they go together. Thank you. It's your house first and foremost.
0: Right. So, so tell me about how people in Louisiana approach you and, 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 and tell me about the interplay that you go through with your client and presenting the ideas, appreciating where they're coming from and how you interpret it. Tell me about that process. Cause that's, that's a tricky, that's a tricky process. Even if you are respecting the instincts that you're picking up from them, how do you interpret what your client is telling you? And what you know from your practice, and bringing those two things together, uh,
4: we could talk for a long time about that.
0: <laughs> we have uh, a little bit of time. I mean, the first
4: thing that we do is uh, is we always look at the site first with the clients. We walk the site where the house is going to be built. If it's a if it's a house from the ground up, if it's a renovation, we certainly walk through the space. Um, I, I start every project following that visit. I start every project with a. I call it the programming meeting, but we meet for two or three hours, and I, it's just it's just the, the clients and myself, and I take notes and I ask them in just tremendous detail about every single room and also what they're bringing to the project, whether it's art, furniture, uh, but we talk a lot about things like kitchens, uh, which everybody has very specific ideas about, and so that we call that the a program document um, comes out of those meetings, and it's a it can be a twenty five page. Uh, outline essentially of what the rooms are going to be, and we go from that. That becomes our, that becomes the basis from which we design.
0: Foundation.
4: Yeah, mm-hmm. and uh, and then the design, you know, comes from images that they've uh, collected, which now are most often in the form of Pinterest boards, or um, in with some clients, and certainly in the older days, magazine clippings or whatever things that they like, and we try to we try to really start to understand what the things that they like might have in common with each other. and then we start drawing and building three-dimensional models and more and more uh, building models in the computer as well. and uh, I think our I think there's a commonality to our work, which as I mentioned before, talking about those rooms and opening those rooms up to hallway. I think all of our projects share a connection between rooms themselves and also, a connection between inside and outside. I'm very much concerned with how the house relates to the uh, the immediate exterior spaces, uh, the lot that it sits on. It's uh, there's nothing better than natural light uh, when the weather when weather permits. There's nothing better than cross breezes, and these aren't new ideas. In fact, if you look at the way New Orleans houses evolved with the porch. I mean, a porch is a perfect transition space between indoors porch and outdoors. Porch
0: and, and balconies and, and, and sleeping balconies, balconies exactly. where people used to literally sleep outside at night when they, without air conditioning. And, and, exactly. uh, and you I was talking, always really impressed with that.
4: And you were talking about New York, having grown up in New York, there was that attitude there too with the stoops. I mean, the stoops oh, yeah. were the sat transition. On your stoop. yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And so um, of course they weren't covered because uh, you weren't going to sleep out there <laughs> with the, with New York's weather, but um, it was a way of reaching out to the street, and, um, and it certainly the, the stoop or the front porch or the balcony or these great transition spaces. But, again, they're just ways of, of connecting. I think we as human beings want to be connected to nature.
0: Absolutely. So when, when um, Tannen and I first came here, we, we lived at 1234 um, Esplanade, which is um, Renee's uh, um, landscape office now, right? What
4: One, two, three, four. What? Oh
0: yeah. Oh, you're right. Absolutely. I'm sorry. (laughs) Twelve thirty-four. Right. And um, and then we wanted to actually get our own home. And um, so Tannen pulls up in front of where we live now, twenty-three twenty-six. And I can't believe I did that. But um, I I looked at it. It was this, you know, wedding cake of a house. And I'm coming from the Bronx or, or 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 Manhattan most recent more recently. And I'm looking at that and saying, oh, what? What? That's not That's not me. I'm not. That's. Where, what are you thinking? I said, I'll sit in the car.
4: <laughs>
0: so he goes inside, and he comes out, and he says, come on in. And he brings me in, and the ground floor where we live, where we've taken out walls, he said, okay, I just want you to picture this. He said, take out the walls and see this whole side of the house facing nothing but green, right? Yeah. So I look at it, I look at it, I said, oh, okay, I get it. And that's how we've lived ever since with that whole side of the house facing green, so I know exactly what you're talking about.
4: Yeah, and and we've got, one, we're in one of the greenest cities in the United States, if not the greenest city in the United States. I'm just talking about the trees here are just, you know, there's there's nowhere like it here, especially a city this large. But but um, also, we've got a climate compared to the East Coast, for instance, or to the upper Midwest or even the Midwest. We've got a climate that allows us all this time outside.
0: Yeah, a lot. and. Um of course, I have a couple um, commercial entities nearby me, and they have lots of weddings. So that's kind of reduced my outside time just a little bit, which is a big issue. You know, that's actually something that I just have to uh, sneak that in for just a second because I'm very interested. You know, I, I was sitting on the HDLC, for quite a, the Historic Districts Landmark Commission, for quite some time, and the focus there is on architecture. Um, on behalf of the preservation of our neighborhoods and our historic neighborhoods. And and to me, um, the issue is not just architecture, it's lifestyle and it's quality of life. And so I think that a focus strictly on architecture is not adequate for really um, looking at how these neighborhoods will prevail into the future. How do you feel about that?
4: I'm actually on the architectural review committee for, for HDLCs uh, for the Central Business District and the Warehouse District. Uh, on our committee, we only review architectural appropriateness, yeah. and we don't speak to those larger issues. I think it's a great conversation worth having when I when um, Doug Meffert, my husband, and I renovated a house in about 2000. Of course, we weren't husbands then, but in about 2000, we renovated a uh, Greek Revival side hall uh, house in the French Quarter and it was not a large house it had a, a small courtyard but there was this huge air con- two air conditioning compressors in the, cor- in the courtyard and at the time the Vukoré Commission didn't allow the compressors to be on the roofs of houses and they said if you can make an argument that putting it on the roof uh, doesn't disturb any of the neighbors you know, we'll consider it. Well, I made the argument that aren't our courtyard spaces as important as our roofscapes? Particularly, I'm talking about the back of a roof. I would never propose putting it on the front of the roof. But I think that's a similar type thing. Uh, of course, those courtyard spaces historically were never meant to be pleasure spaces. They were meant to be working kitchen courtyards.
2: Oh, um, okay. Yeah, the
4: kitchens uh-huh. were in the dependency wings, and uh, they were not ever meant to be beautiful courtyards. But the way we live now, uh, it's it, – it's just a wonderful thing about the French Quarter and so many neighborhoods in our city that have these, that have these exterior spaces within uh, very built environments. Uh, we, we made the argument, and, and we, we won. And um, I, I've encouraged other people to try to do the same thing. We had to prove that uh, there weren't windows um, of uh, neighboring buildings that actually had views of where, the, uh, where these components would go. But um, I think quality of life issues are extremely important and i think those are addressed more at the at the at the full HDLC, not on the architecture review committee that i sit on but i think at the full commission they are they're
0: still they're still pretty constrained by their commitment to dealing with architecture as opposed to um you know for example you know as i said noise is is, is an issue i think that's huge um, in, a, in a neighborhoods, and um, if, if somebody has a, a B&B where they are having lots of weddings and, and there's loud acoustic music outdoors all the time, um, that's impinging on the quality of life of that neighborhood, and I think the HGLC should be considering that, but that's I'm going to be working on that, <laughs> so we'll see how that goes. Lee, what, what did you hope, um, hope to accomplish with your book, and um, how do you feel about it? I mean, it is absolutely beautiful, the Art of Place, Lee Ledbetter, Architecture and Interiors. This is this is a a, a wonderful book to get some great ideas uh, from. So, but what, what were you hoping? What was your objective in doing this book?
4: I I'm very fortunate to say they approached me, so it really wasn't my objective. I mean, Rizzoli approached me uh, through a through a woman that had written for them and and had included me in a book that she had written or a couple books and and uh, so. I just said yes. I mean, I was tremendously flattered. I think the best thing about it has been just codifying this 25-year this body of work and looking at it all together, and uh, it's been really satisfying.
0: I hope that um, this can happen for other um, architects in this region because I think that architects in our part of the world have not, really gotten the exposure they should. And and that takes me to one other subject that I can't help but touch on, too. Um, I'm very concerned that um, kids going to school in, in New Orleans, um, many of whom are going to come out and wind up working in the building trades, uh, they're going to work in landscapes, um, uh, they're going to work in, in homes doing carpentry are not getting the training that would enable them to become professionals, to become architects, to become interior designers, to become landscapers as opposed to yard people. Um, uh, How how do you feel about that? What can we do to encourage um, more of our youth to pursue their careers in this area? You were lucky enough to have that light bulb go off in the end of your freshman year in college. Uh, How can we promote more light bulbs going off so Kids come out with um, the the skills and and the credentials to be able to um, do the kind of work that you do.
4: I think it's a great question, and uh, it's uh, it is an issue even in in architecture schools all over the country today. And uh, if you look at the the student bodies, there there there's not a lot of diversity. Um, and actually, when I was in school, there wasn't even a lot of diversity in terms of gender. Um, but uh, when I worked at Mornings in and Merrill in, in Chicago, right after I finished graduate school, there was a program that um, SOM, which is called at the time, did called the Senator Newhouse Program. Called what? The Senator Newhouse Program. Senator Newhouse was a prominent African-American senator from the state of, um, state of Illinois. And uh, I don't actually know what his inv- original involvement was because this program was established by the time I got there. But I volunteered um, – in this program as did many others at SOM and other architecture firms around the city and we went into high schools and basically talked to kids in public high schools in Chicago and basically brought brought uh, brought our careers to them we would do little sketch classes we do some mechanical drawing classes but we would talk to them about architecture and what architecture was just to just to let them know that this is a field that's there and it's there for them if they you know, have the interest in the skills to pursue it. So I think that's I think that would be very important.
0: I, I would love to see uh, maybe the um, AIA uh, possibly, and maybe some of the universities, Tulane um, uh, and others, where they're teaching architecture to take this on. And it's something that um, I work with in terms of all of the creative uh, professions. But the one that strikes me that is most ripe for Kids in in New Orleans to to think about and get involved in is architecture because well the rest of the world always thinks about us in terms of music and food when they get here they see the architecture and they understand. Why so many of us are drawn to this crazy city, New Orleans, that we live Absolutely. in? Absolutely, Lee. Thank you so much for coming in. I know you weren't feeling that well today. I was feeling pretty miserable myself, so um, we managed to thank get you, here and, and communicate. And uh, congratulations on this. this! is a beautiful book, The Art of Place. Lee Ledbetter, Architecture and Interiors by Rizzoli, edited by Mayor Russ 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 Mayor Russ. Um, so um, congratulations. Thank you. And thank you, everybody, for listening once again. And uh, look forward to talking with you on the other side of Easter. Please have a beautiful, peaceful, loving Easter time in New Orleans and areas around us.
2: Bye. <laughs>